If you've been following the news much, then you may have noticed reporters beginning to explore how COVID is impacting crime rates around the country. Police commissioners are even appearing on newscasts trying to explain how various COVID measures may have changed the kinds of crimes they're seeing in their cities. One of the problems becomes tying those changes directly to COVID and of course, a long-standing issue when it comes to crime rates is understanding how we measure crime in the first place. Measuring crime is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former chair of media, journalism, and film. Our guest today is Sharon Lohr. Lohr is an emeritus professor in the School of Mathematical and Statistical Sciences and the Dean's Professor of Statistics at Arizona State University. She's also an independent statistical consultant. Her research interests include survey sampling, design of experiments, and applications of statistics in education, criminology, and law. She's the author of the book published in 2019, Measuring Crime, Behind the Statistics. Sharon, thank you so much for being here. Oh, nice to be here. Thank you for having me. How did your interest in in how we measure crime develop? Um, it actually started when I was an assistant professor, and the Bureau of Justice Statistics held a workshop for people on using National Crime Victimization Survey data. And so before that, I'd been working in sequential analysis, a completely different area of statistics. And after going to this uh, workshop, it was actually a two-week workshop, I just fell in love with the whole subject of survey sampling and how do you measure these things. So did you, did you ever get involved in, in studies and designing surveys, st- survey tools or instruments for studying crime? before you got involved in working on this book? You know, I've worked on the National Crime Victimization Survey data for a long time. And while I was at Westad, I participated in a project on um, developing a mail survey that different localities could use to measure crime. So, so for example, if a community wanted to implement a new community com- policing program and they wanted to have a mail survey to you know, evaluate the effects of that. They could do a survey before and then after having the program in place. So how do we, how do we learn about crime in our communities? What are some of the, the, the sources of data that's, that's used to, inf- to inform our understanding about how safe the, the, is the place where we live? So, so there are several major sources of crime. So one of them that started around 1930 is the Uniform Crime Reports. And this is a compilation of statistics that are collected by law enforcement agencies across the country. And if you go to the FBI website, you'll find them. And they have a nice crime data explorer that you can explore all of the trends over time. You can download the data. And these are crimes that are known to and recorded by police agencies. The other major national source is the National Crime Victimization Survey. And this is a survey of households and people within the households, people age 12 and over within the households. Mm. And it asks them about their experiences with crime. And not surprisingly, the National Crime Victimization Survey 
generally has higher crime rates than the uniform crime reports because it's asking people about their experiences and it's also capturing crimes that are not reported to the police. And so that's basically the only source of information we have nationally on crimes that are not reported to the police. But overall for, you know, violent crimes, about half or so tend to be reported to the police. And we know that from the survey. Okay. And which, which kind, what type of crimes are the, are the, where there's, is there the most disagreement between the, these two data sources? Um, It's generally the, um, the more serious the crime, the more agreement there is. Oh, that makes sense. Right. And also for crimes that you really need a police report to get recovery, such as motor vehicle theft, right? Motor vehicle theft has the highest percentage basically reported to the police because your insurance company wants the police report. Okay. Very good. Sharon, um, what's what's one thing that uh, you would want the general public to understand about crime statistics that they probably don't understand very well right now? And I say this because you seem to have this commitment to being a statistician who wants to reach the general public in a way that well, some scientists and statisticians uh, aren't trained to do that. They don't do it. So what doesn't the general public understand about crime statistics? I think it's that all crime statistics are estimates. They're not exact numbers. And, and I think that a lot of people, they see um, the homicide statistics from year to year, and they think, oh, there were exactly this number of homicides nationwide. But even homicide statistics are an estimate. Mm-hmm. I, I really liked how you described in, in your book these, these issues of the idea that there's missing data, that there's some measurement challenges. Could, could you talk a little bit about kind of these other sources of, of uncertainty that are part of the data that's being reported is, is kind of a follow-up to Richard's question. Right. Well, all, all statistics that we look at have uncertainty associated with them. And when you look at a survey like the National Crime Victimization Survey, they'll give you a margin of error about the statistics. And it's just like when you see election polls right now, we're seeing a lot of those being publicized at the moment. And they all have a margin of error associated with them. But that's just one type of error. And that's the error that results because the poll has a sample of say a thousand people instead of looking at everybody. And the same thing for the National Crime Victimization Survey. It has a much, much, much larger sample, but it doesn't look at every household in the country. Right, and so the sampling error, that's what people learn about in their intro stats course, right? When you're doing a confidence interval, that's the kind of error you're looking at. But all of these other data sources have errors too. So the police reports, they have missing data from all of the crimes that are not reported to the police. They also have measurement error because sometimes a crime is put into the wrong classification, yeah. right? So something might actually be an aggravated assault, but it's recorded as a simple assault or a burglary. They might not know, and it might be you know, recorded as a vandalism. 
So there's that kind of error as, as well. And, and these errors are not, there's no measure of these that are reported. So you, one of the things that you're interested in, which, which I'm also interested in, is that most people find out about crime statistics through journalism, through the reports that reporters make of your work and others, uh, other statisticians. What can journalists do better? I think you even comment that they're getting better at it, but what aggravates you when you see a news report on a crime statistic? I mean, I, I want to start by acknowledging what you just said, and that is that the journalism about statistics has just improved tremendously over the last few years. And so you'll see a lot of reporters going into in-depth into the sources and into what could possibly you know, be affecting the statistics other than, you know, the, the things that are reported in the source. But I think one thing journalists want to be careful of is looking at very, very short-term trends and reporting them as real events. And I think we've seen a lot of that this spring. A recent example I saw was a news story that said the number of people shot in New York City had increased more than 400%. And my first thought was, well, where did that huge number come from? A lot of times when people report large percentage increases, it's the kind of thing where a headline shouts that the homicide rate doubled when it really should say there was one homicide last year and two homicides this year. And I think that's partly what happened here. This really large percentage came from comparing the number of shootings for one week in 2020 with the same time period in 2019. But the week being compared from 2019 had an unusually low number. And because of that low baseline, the percentage increase was unusually large. And I think there was another problem with this statistic. If you look at every single weekly percentage increase for every single type of crime recorded by New York City, you're eventually going to come across a number that's really big. But when you report just that one big number, which may be way out of line with a typical week or with other types of crime, you're giving readers the impression that crime has increased a lot more than it really has. I think you really need to look at a longer time periods and multiple statistics and multiple sources of data. You know, that's, it seems like that's, that's one of the themes that, that you encounter, that we encounter in your book is this idea of understanding context. And I, I really liked the, uh, particularly your, the, the table where you talk about the eight questions to ask about a statistic. You know, so in, in the example that you just gave, it sounds like you, one of the things that you're, the, the question that you're hitting on there is in part the, what were the methods that were used to get this information? Maybe that was one of it. And also, what are, what's the source of the statistic? So what are some of the other, you know, other examples within your, your kind of, uh, your eight, eight questions that help you understand the quality of a statistic? I mean, I think the primary one is what is the source? And you never, you know, I never want to trust a statistic that somebody said, oh, I saw this on Facebook. <laughs> right. Really? Yeah. How about that? Yeah. And, and I mean, actually, the, that chapter, you know, about how to judge the quality of a statistic, that's the reason I wrote the book. Ah. 
because I wanted to write something for, you know, the general citizen who sees statistics all around. And you think, well, how do I know which ones I can trust? Because this source says this statistic and this source says this statistic. And what I wanted to get at there is that there are statistical principles that you judge statistics by. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with statistician Sharon Lohr, author of the 2019 book, Measuring Crime Behind the Statistics. You know, Sharon, in your book, I really enjoyed the chapter that was, was touching on crime statistics 1915 and beyond. And, and one of the things that you, one of the people that you introduced in there was Edith Abbott. And I, I was just thinking, wow, the, given this description and all the work that, that uh, she did, it's, it's really f- remarkable to, to, to not hear her described and discussed in some of our intro classes. I mean, and by the way, I think that's a challenge that, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask our introductory instructors in my department to consider as they talk about historical figures within, within statistics. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what led to, to her work in crime statistics? And in fact, she published in 1915 a report on statistics related to crime in Chicago. What, what, why, was, why was Edith Abbott so engaged in this topic and what, what put her in a place to have this impact? I mean, this is, I had actually never heard of Edith Abbott before either. And it's partly because she just didn't appear in the histories that had been written about statistics or about crime statistics. And this is even though, you know, she was elected to be a fellow of the American Statistical Association later. And she was well known at the time. Uh, President Hoover later picked her to be on a commission writing a report about crime. You know, she was the first woman to be the dean of a U.S. graduate school. So she was extremely well known. It's just not in conjunction with statistics. Right. And so what I think happened is that she was just in the right place right when there was this need for a report. Because in the spring of 1914, what happened is there was this crime wave in Chicago. Or I should say, people thought there was a crime wave because nobody had any statistics to back it up. And so at the time, Charles Merriam was an alderman on the Chicago City Council. And so he wanted to have an investigation into what are the statistics behind crime? You know, what actually is going on? Is crime really you know, increasing like the newspapers are saying they are at the moment. And he didn't know very much statistics himself. And there's been documentation about some of his um, limitations in that regard. (laughs) But he knew Edith Abbott. And so she was teaching at the Chicago School of Civics and Philanthropy. And she was at Hull House which was the settlement house founded by Jane Adams. And this was, you know, the place to be. If I could go to any dinner party in history, I would want to go to one of those dinner part dinners at Hull House <laughs> where you just had all these incredible people gathered around the table discussing the issues of the day. And so she had a background in statistics, maybe, you know, the best background you could have had at the time. And so he asked her to take charge of gathering the data. 
And what's amazing to me is that she did all of the data gathering and she wrote her report in less than six months without any computational, you know, assistance from electronic devices. <laughs> You know, it was funny when I was reading some of some your description of this, I, I felt like I could be reading some of the headlines from the present and some of the work that motivated what she was doing. So so what were some of the assertions that she either supported or refuted with the data that she had collected? Well, one of the big things that she looked at was the issue of um, immigration and crime. And that was a big debate at the day, right? Because... Um, a lot of politicians took one side or the other, but without any data. And what she did is she looked, she gathered all of the data sources that she could find in Chicago from the police department, from the courts, uh, from the House of Corrections. And she looked at the quality of those data sources to be able to assess whether they'd be good for her purposes. And so she found that some of them were uh, better quality than others, but she had suggestions for how to improve the quality of all of them. And so with respect to the issue of immigration and crime, she compared the percentage of people from each nativity group in Chicago with those in the 1910 census. And her conclusion was that actually there were fewer foreign-born people in Chicago being arrested than their proportion in the 1910 census. And the mythology at the time was that crime was coming more from foreign-born, right? And that's what she uncovered, that that wasn't actually true. That, that reminds me of today, actually. <laughs> in some of the reporting that's gone Right, on. and so, I mean, she did acknowledge that her data were not of very high quality. And so, and that was another thing that I think set her ahead of her time, mm -hmm. that she was mm -hmm. so concerned about the data quality. But, mm -hmm. but her conclusion from her um, investigation is she reported that the foreign board accounted for 36% of arrests 35% of convictions, but 54% of the Chicago population of men age 21 and over. So a big discrepancy. That's, that's, such, a, that's such a nice, simple reasoning of just, just proportional reasoning to try to do that mm -hmm. comparison, to make that case. That's, that's an effective communication. I mean, I, I, did, did it have impact? Did, did, they, uh, did that sort of change the way things had been reported, do you know? I haven't been able to find that it had that much impact. And it was partly because of the context when the, the um, report was released in 1915, because it was released right after um, one of Chicago's more colorful mayors was elected. His name was uh, <laughs> Big Bill Thompson, and he mm -hmm. was strongly anti-immigrant. I, one thing that I, I've think, been thinking about a lot in relation to some of the conversations we've had, particularly around Florence Nightingale, and now this conversation we're having about Edith Abbott, is that there seems to have been there seems to have been a number of women who were working early in in the field of statistics that um, certainly um, you know uh, popularly we don't 
recognized. Like Florence Nightingale, we recognize as this sort of, you know, saint of nursing. But I think the general public has no idea that she was, you know, a figure in the field of statistics as well. And and why why is it that so many of these female people who were sort of helping shape the field so early have been overlooked? And, and why do you think it's now that we're starting to learn more about their contributions? Or at least understand them better? I think that's an excellent question. Because Edith Abbott, she is well known in the field of social work. But in just Chicago at that time, you know, there was a publication by the University of Chicago that listed their uh, the people teaching courses and their publications. And they listed, what, I think around 16 faculty in the sociology uh, department. And four of those were women. And when I looked at the publications, the women were, they were out publishing the men at the time, and they were publishing in the same journals. But then what happened is the women were then split off into social work, and the men were retained in sociology. And so I think that had a big impact on how the work was viewed academically. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's also for Edith Abbott's report, you know, I don't think you have to posit any kind of, you know, conspiracy to keep women from being recognized. Her report was a chapter in a larger report that was authored by Charles Merriam. And so a lot of people referred to this report, but they referred to it as the Merriam report, not as the Edith Abbott report. We can probably guess here that men were writing the, hist- the early history of statistics also, which is a, right. another thing that happened. Well, the other thing is that, you know, Abbott was not on the um, committee that started the Uniform Crime Reports. I mean, I think there were men on that committee that were familiar with her work and that conveyed some of her ideas, but it's hard for me to believe that the early uniform crime reports would not have been better if they had gotten Edith Abbott on there herself. So so you wrote that, that her work helped set the stage for that for the UCR. And so can can you talk about a couple of those specific contributions that were, were kind of embraced and then incorporated in the UCR? Well, one thing that she emphasized was that there needed to be uniform definitions for how crimes are okay. classified and recorded. And you needed to have procedures for how this is done. So, you know, she talked about how in Chicago in 1915 that you know, there, were, there weren't any good data on crime complaints. And so she argued that the closer you actually get to the crime, the better the data are likely to be. So courts are further away than the arrest data, and the arrest data are further away than the complaints to the police. And so she argued that having data on the complaints to the police would actually be a really valuable source of information about crime. I, I wonder, you know, as, as I think about this, I, I, I was thinking 1915, when was the first Department of Statistics in the U.S.? Wasn't it in the 1940s? Actually, there were uh, state bureaus of labor statistics. Okay. I was thinking academic, but but in terms of the in service of the state, yeah, we'd, we'd probably see offices earlier than that. 
but yeah. Yeah, but but certainly there were a lot of government offices in the 19th century. Yeah, but I, when I was thinking about just just going back to the academic side of it, it just as a discipline, I think statistics emerged pretty late in, you know, it was it was 1940s or so before one of the first in the U.S. emerged. I think Iowa State was before that. Was it okay? I think that they fight with uh, NC State about that, right? I think you're right about Iowa State. <laughs> right, but Gertrude Cox came to NC State yeah. from yeah. Iowa State. That's she had that's been true. in the Department of Statistics yeah. there. Yeah. So. so, Richard, I want you to notice that this has been there's been a lot of history to talk about right now. That's you know? right. I appreciate yeah, this it. Is a... I also wanted to, to compliment Sharon on her writing, and I, I did want to know about your interest in writing and on your interest in uh, as a statistician on reaching the general public. Where did that come from, and where did you learn to write? Because some statisticians, no offense, John, <laughs> don't. Hey, wait a minute, John, pal. Does, John wait, actually wait. does write well. So where, where, did, where did that interest come I'm from? I'm not sure exactly where I learned how to write. I think mostly from reading a lot of Jane Austen and everything else I came across. And from practice and going through a lot of drafts. I think I probably wrote about 20 drafts for this book. And each time I tried to tighten it up and just improve the storytelling. But the interest in writing this book, it came from conversations with friends and neighbors who aren't statisticians. We're seeing right now that there are just so many sources of information, mm -hmm. and there are so many statistics being thrown at you. A natural question is, well, how do I know what's a good statistic and what's not a good statistic? How do I know which ones I can trust? I think there are a lot of really excellent books about statistics, but I didn't see one out there that addressed this issue of how can someone who's not a professional statistician look at what statistics are out there and judge whether they are trustworthy. Mm -hmm. Well, Sharon, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank Thanks, you Sharon. so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Thank you.